0: Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. We're going to be talking about the four horsemen. And uh, I had somebody write, Tom Elliff was writing me this morning. He said he's praying uh, for me and and for several others as well. And I I told him we were going to be, uh, I was going to be speaking on the four horsemen. He said, heaven or Notre Dame? If you didn't get that, you probably don't like football very much. And uh, so ask a neighbor, say, what the world is he talking about? It's all good. But, yeah, we're going to talk about the four horsemen. And i got to tell you, this is a serious (laughs) thing, isn't it? Revelations, heavy. Uh, What's the sense of urgency in our lives? What's the sense of urgency? There's so many different ways in which that we could... uh, begin to talk about the Lord and his sovereignty, his power, his authority. But in chapter 6 of Revelation, we begin to see how the Lord begins to bring judgment onto this earth. This is the beginning of the tribulation. And we got a a picture here for you. Let me bring us up to speed. I've taken some time to do some pre-chapter 6 things. We've talked about the Antichrist and others, other stuff, the rapture, etc., But there are certain events that have been prophesied to bring us to the point where this seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation, the great tribulation, Jacob's distress, there's all kinds of different names for it in Scripture, begins. You got that? You got that thrown up? So we've got the Olivet Discourse where nations rising up against nations is a sign of the beginning of the birth pangs of the end. We have the, the bringing back of Israel. Uh, together, because we know that Daniel's 70th week really is about Israel in so many different ways. It's about the putting an end to sin. It's a putting down of rebellion. It's the Lord bringing justice to his creation. But then you also have Israel in control of Jerusalem, and you had the six-day war where Israel is now in control of the Temple Mount. Potentially Gog and Magog, which is out of Ezekiel 38, And the whole picture of the northern alliance led by the leader of Russia and the alliance that he creates in order to come against Israel. You have a one world government, you have ten kingdoms, and that's not, uh, I don't believe, uh, uh, Europe. Those are sectioning off the entire world into 10 different kingdoms. You have the reign of the Antichrist or certainly the beginning of that. And you have a period of false peace. And then you have the signing of the covenant. And Daniel nine lets us know very clearly that when that covenant is signed, that is when the stopwatch begins and there's a seven year period of time that the Lord has uh, proclaimed will take place. And it's for two reasons. It's for the putting down of sin or rebellion. And it is also for uh, the bringing of Israel back to himself. Now, I believe that the rapture takes place prior to the signing of the covenant. We're not told exactly how many years prior to, so it could be a significant time prior to the signing of the covenant. I don't believe the tribulation period of time is for the church, though I do believe, and we're going to see this next week in the fifth seal, that there are many who are saved during the tribulation period of time. I think it's amazing when you look at this program of the Lord. Some of this is obviously prophetic. It hasn't happened yet, and it is unfolding. And so we look at Scripture. We want to handle it as accurately as possible. We want to make sure that we allow Scripture to say what Scripture says. This issue of eschatology or the end times, the study of the end times, is very difficult and intricate. So nobody, I believe, has an absolute dogmatic Uh, view on this in terms of the time frames or the timelines what we do know is that the Lord is coming back now that we can say unequivocally and in the midst of our message this morning the issue here is that every believer can take heart that the Lord will judge sin and bring justice to this earth think about that have you had somebody do an injustice to you have you done an injustice to somebody When we look at this earth, and we look at all the things that are going on, there's a lot of injustice, isn't there? There's a lot of sin. (laughs) And as the people of God, we know that we're not exempt from tripping and stumbling, we just know that we've been redeemed, we've been declared saints, that we are in Christ, that we are citizens of heaven, but we still struggle with it as well. Thank God for his grace and his forgiveness and his cleansing for us. We have a message of hope. And the question in many ways becomes, what is the urgency with which we are pursuing, following the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior? How are we availing ourselves to him each and every day to walk in his truth, that his truth may be revealed through us, that his love may be seen through our lives? When the Lord wants us to witness or share with somebody, are we willing and available to Him in order for Him to do that in and through us? When the Lord wants us to serve somebody, we're willing and available to Him for Him to do that through us. When the Lord wants us to love on somebody or to forgive somebody, or you fill in the blank, are we available to the Lord for Him to do that in and through us? Or Are we so caught up in the things of the world that in some way, shape, or form, we have lost perspective about what God has called us into, this absolute amazing walk and journey with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, the first four seals in Revelation chapter six, verses one through eight, are the four horsemen. And you know this term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The word apocalypse is just a fancy word for something that is now being uncovered. And what is being uncovered? It's not the four horsemen. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the true identity that he really is to the entire world. That he's the ruler, that he's the judge, that he's the supreme king of the universe. That is being revealed. And that is something that the entire 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time, is all about. These four horsemen the henchmen of Satan, if you want to think of it that way, are really, I believe, energized, satanically energized men. They are certainly some form of being. Maybe they are angelic. Maybe they are demonic. We're not really sure. I would suggest that the first horseman, we're going to look at this carefully, is the Antichrist, which we know is an individual, is a human being that is energized by Satan and as a result i would look at these other three horsemen and ask the question are these also human beings on this earth given authority in order to accomplish certain things to bring about what Satan wants on this earth in terms of a one world government, in terms of a false trinity, etc. And as a result God has given them the authority to do that, but they are still under God's supreme design with regard to what he wants to accomplish and will accomplish. It's a fascinating question. Can't be dogmatic about it. The point of the matter is is if the first one's a human being, then I don't know how we systematically walk through and say the next three are not. We'll look at that carefully. What are the horses? It's interesting, isn't it? Horses, anybody like horses? I like horses. I like Arabian horses. I do not own an Arabian. I don't wanna own an Arabian. I don't wanna have to feed that thing every day. You know what I'm saying? But I do like Arabians, and uh, I think they're beautiful. I think horses are beautiful. Holland has always wanted an Arabian. Uh, she's well. She likes Arabian too, but she's always wanted a horse. And uh, I'm sorry, baby. I told her that when uh, we come back with the Lord one day at the end of the Revelation, you'll have a horse because we'll be seated on a white horse, and it's going to be white, and so you really enjoy it. <laughs> That's terrible. That's horrible. I'm sorry. But it's true. Warren Wearsby says this, the horse imagery is probably related to the vision described in Zechariah 1, 7 through 17. I would encourage you to read that at some point. Horses represent God's activity on earth, the forces he uses to accomplish his divine purposes. The center of his program is Israel, particularly the city of Israel. Of Jerusalem. What we have here is the beginning of the opening of the seals. The scroll has now been unfolded, and the seals, one by one, are going to be opened. They are chronological in order, meaning they take place one right after the other. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. And what we have is a seven year designated period of time that begins immediately at the signing of the covenant by the Antichrist with Israel. And through the next seven year period of time, we have literally hell unleashed on planet Earth. There's no other way to put it. It's horrible, it's devastating. These are divine judgments of God's wrath towards iniquity as well as his desire to bring Israel back to himself where at the end of this seven year period of time we see Israel calling out to their Messiah recognizing they had missed the boat, that Jesus truly is their Messiah and the Lord stepping in to rescue them. It's amazing. Each of these four horsemen represent a seal that is being opened. The first seal, I believe, the white horse is all about the Antichrist. Look at that, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Notice several things. First of all, The lamb broke this first seal. I think that's absolutely essential to understand. These seven seals are divine judgments from God himself. He is absolutely sovereign over it. He does not create evil, but he allows it in order to bring about his own purposes. And in the midst of this seal being opened, what we have is these horsemen coming in with their various roles in order to bring about evil on this earth so that God will use it in order to accomplish his purpose. He's an authority over this. He is absolutely sovereign over this. Secondly, one of the four living creatures tells the rider what to do. Now, if you remember... Chapter 4 and chapter 5, we had the 24 elders, which I believe represent the church. We also had the four living creatures that were around the very throne of God. And each one of these horses are told what to do. Each one of these men on these horses are told what to do. And this first one, this living creature simply tells him to come, and he gives to this horseman a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he goes out to conquer, or goes out conquering as well as... To conquer. The rider is sitting on a white horse. It's interesting because all the colors of these horses, I believe that the white here is indicating a false sense of peace. He's given a bow, but we're not told that there are any arrows given for the bow. And the indication very well may be that this individual, this antichrist, I believe, is going out in order to conquer, but he does so in a way where he undermines, where he takes over through political intrigue. He goes about doing what he does, and he doesn't have to use war in order to accomplish it necessarily and or directly. It's fascinating. He's able to win people to himself in a way where he's able to gain power without necessarily using force to do it. No arrows, no quiver. He's given a bow indicating that he will conquer, but it's without the weapons necessary in order to kill. He's also given a crown. Now, if you know me and, and uh, <laughs> you know this statement, right, there's at least two Greek words for every English word that we have. Am I correct? Do you know that by now? You surely ought to know that by now. There are two words from crown. This is the crown that my wife and my brother-in-law are named after. Stephanie, Stephanos, Stephen. It has the idea of a victor's crown. The other crown is diadem, which is for somebody who is royal. So the indication here is that this individual is taking power. He is not royalty. He is not divine in nature. But rather, he is victorious in what he goes about in order to accomplish he says he goes out conquering and to conquer it's interesting that the antichrist at this point has made a deal with israel in indicating that he does at this moment in history have some power but there's still much to conquer so even though he has some power it is given him to have more We see this in the taking over of the world government. We see this in the way in which he rises even to further power, culminating in the middle of the tribulation where he literally sets himself up in the temple uh, in order to look, up, look as if or to claim or to declare that he's a god and the entire world worships him. That's the abomination of desolation. So there's a lot of work for him to do. He's got some power, but he's going out conquering and to conquer. He is given the ability to actually do that. He is allowed, he's unleashed in order to do this. I think what Arnold Fruchtenbaum has to say about this is is right on. He said, To fully understand the person and the activities of the Antichrist, he needs to be viewed within the framework of the counterfeit trinity. Catch that? The counterfeit, the false trinity. According to Revelation 13, an unholy trinity will be set up in the great tribulation. Satan will play the role of the counterfeit father. For just as the true father gave all his authority to the son, Satan will give all his authority to the Antichrist. The false prophet will play the role of the counterfeit Holy Spirit. You have Satan playing the part of the father, you have the Antichrist playing the part of the son, and you have the false beast or the false prophet coming along, playing the part of a false Holy Spirit. It is a counterfeit trinity. And certainly the Antichrist plays a major role In this, let me review with you real quickly some of the things we went over a few weeks ago. But where does the Antichrist come from? I'm going to go through a series of passages here. Uh, If you ever want my notes, please just email Susan. I'll get you the notes because I realize we go through these pretty quickly. Sometimes uh, people get lost in, in the amount of verses. But just listen carefully to this Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now catch this. And the people of the prince who is to come. You catch this? The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Speaking of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The people of the prince who is to come, who will destroy the city, who destroyed Jerusalem in seventy A.D. It is the Romans who are the people that did this. It is the Romans who is the people. The prince then from the Romans believe the Antichrist will be Roman in his ethnic origin, and that's where he's going to come from. Fruchtenbaum says this, since the Antichrist must be of the same nationality as the people who destroy the city and the temple, it is this verse that shows that the Antichrist will be a Gentile of Roman origin. Secondly, we know that the Antichrist is a blasphemer. In Daniel 11, verses 36 and following, he says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and listen to this, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He's a blasphemer. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He's also called the beast having 10 horns. Daniel 7:8 says, "While I was contemplating the horns, behold another horn, a little one, came up among them, and 3 of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn, meaning the antichrist, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts." He comes in And he takes over from the ten horns, being the little horn, as well as, in Revelation, being called uh, the horns, the ten horns. And he takes over. And again, he's uttering great boasts. He is evil. He is an antichrist. He is against Christ. He is a false Christ. I believe he's the first horseman of the apocalypse. In Revelation 13, we learn quite a bit. We'll get there about five years from now. The beast out of the sea, humanity is empowered by Satan. In Revelation 13, 1, it says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. The sea there is indicating the Gentile nations. The beast is the Antichrist coming up out of the nations, coming up out of the Gentile nations. And at the end of verse 2, we learn the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. What do we know about the white horse? What do we know about the one sitting on the white horse? He is to go out conquering and to conquer. He is given that power to do so. And Satan empowers him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 says that is, speaking of the Antichrist, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. That word activity literally means the energizing ability of Satan. It's not just that he, he looks like he's being active like Satan, it means that Satan is actually energizing him to do what he is doing. And he also has all power and signs and false wonders. He's able to perform miracles. He's able to do things that bewitch people. They look at what he's doing and they think, surely this is in effect a God. But we know that he's not. We know that he's false. And scripture makes that very clear. In verse 3 of Revelation 13, he also has a wound to his head. He recovers and he's worshiped by those on the earth. He says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, followed after the Antichrist. In verse 6, excuse me, 7 and 8 of Revelation 13, we find that the Antichrist will have authority over the nations for at least a time and that all will worship him Except for those who believe in the Lamb, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible. He will set himself up, as I said, in the temple of God. And by the way, I think I said the fourth temple, and I apologize for the confusion on that, it is the third temple. And so for those of you who had the discussion, I know some of you all are here, understand it's the third temple that we are looking forward to. by the way, and we're going to have a picture of this in a few weeks. If you get on to Google Maps, You will find that Google has actually recreated the temple and placed it on the temple mount. What? Incredible. Folks, if you don't think we're close, I'm not sure how to encourage you in that one, but I believe we're pretty close. It's unbelievable in so many ways. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and following he says let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness this is the antichrist is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of god displaying himself as being god the antichrist So the first seal is the white horse, the first horseman of the apocalypse. The first seal that has been opened by the Lord Jesus Christ is the Antichrist riding on a white horse, taking over in so many different ways the political as well as the religious systems of this earth, conquering and going out to conquer and being successful in the midst of it. He's energized by Satan to politically and spiritually rule over this world as a false Christ. The second seal, in verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 6, the second seal is all about war. He says this in verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. During the beginning of the tribulation, war will break out. Now, potentially, this could be Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38. We looked at the list of things taking place prior to the signing of the covenant, prior to the seven-year period of time, and Gog and Magog is listed there, Ezekiel 38. And it may be that Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, takes place here at the very beginning of the tribulation. Either way, it is devastating. Either way, it is the second seal and war is breaking out on this earth. A false peace that led to the signing of the covenant by the Antichrist with Israel will now erupt into worldwide war. Think about that. How does the Antichrist gain power? Through a false peace, through a false sense of of security for this world. And immediately... Upon this Daniel 70th week beginning, the Antichrist is unleashed and the second seal is opened again by the Lord. This is a judgment from him. This is what he is allowing in order for Satan to do what he's going to do, but in order for God to bring about his purposes in the end. And war begins to break out, and it is horrific. How do we know that? Because he says men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Again, we don't know, and I won't be dogmatic about this. Is this a demonic being? Is this a man? My sense is that this is an individual, this is a man. Just like the Antichrist is a man, and maybe this is a henchman of the Antichrist in order to go about dealing with humanity and to bring war to humanity to create chaos in order to bring a one world government even tighter under the control of the Antichrist. We're going to look at that in a little bit. Our history tells us that this is not outside the bounds of reasonability. We've seen this over and over again within even this last century. Peace will be taken from the earth. The great sword is speaking of the sword that Roman soldiers would use in battle. And the emphasizing of the greatness of the sword is referring to the scope of the war that takes place. It has a wide swath. It is totality. There's war everywhere. In Matthew 24, verses 9 through 10, in the Olivet Discourse, where the Lord begins to speak to the issue of the time of the tribulation, The Lord says this, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. He's speaking to the Jewish disciples and he's talking to them about the tribulation and what's going to happen during the tribulation prior to the abomination of desolation, which in Matthew 24 is what he then goes on to describe. And he's saying that this time before the abomination of desolation, which takes place at the middle of the tribulation, is going to be a time of death, of tribulation. Because they will come against Israel. They will come against the Jews. The Antichrist will lead armies against Israel and the Jews. The second seal, this red horse, is a horse of war. And it is worldwide and horrific in its scope. The th- third seal is famine. In verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine." The rider on the black horse is now given power in order to cause famine. The scales represent the measuring of food, which will be severely lacking. A quart of wheat is hardly enough for anyone to be sustained, much less a family. Barley will be more abundant, though barely. Barley was often used to feed animals due to its lack of quality. And so the food stores of the earth will be diminished and or certainly controlled to where the population begins to experience severe famine. Oil and wine were not to be damaged. Did you catch that? Unlike the food sources. And it's interesting why the Lord would cause there to be a moment where there's a line drawn as to the impact of what this third horseman Was able to do. I believe this is a picture of God's mercy in the midst of this horrible famine. Oil and wine can be used for medicinal purposes as well as purifying purposes. And so, in the midst of this war and in the midst of this horrible famine, There is still the statement from the living creature, obviously from God himself in the midst of this seal being opened, this black horse that's been unleashed, this rider of death, if you want to think of it that way, where they are not allowed to touch the wine, they're not allowed to touch the olive oil for medicinal purposes as well as potentially purifying purposes. War brings about catastrophic change. When people are trying to control things, when people are using war and the execution and or the killing of entire civilizations, it has an impact in a way that is devastating. We get glimpses of it and tastes of it clearly from the past. I was talking to Tim Hale about this, and it was interesting, the purifying aspect of things. When you talk about Gettysburg, just one battle, probably the fiercest The most deadly battle in the Civil War taking place in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Do you realize how long it took for the water to be able to be drinkable after that battle? Three months. Three months. They had to purify the water. They had to get water from other places. Think about that one battle. We're talking about a worldwide catastrophe here of a magnitude that we have never witnessed before. It will have devastating consequences. And I believe these men on these horses are henchmen of Satan in order to bring about what his desire, what his plan is for a one world government. But the Lord has a leash on this. The Lord is absolutely in control of this and will use this in order to bring about the end. And ultimately to bring about his rule and reign out of Jerusalem. MacArthur puts it this way about the scales and the food. He says, The average worker's salary will be barely provide enough food for himself for each day and not enough to feed his family. Those with families will be able to purchase three quarts of barley for a denarius. That will provide food for their families, but barley was low in nutritional value and often fed to livestock. We're talking famine. We're talking control. We're talking about a desire in order to control the entire earth and the population of the earth in order for the Antichrist to be set up as a god. And that's exactly what's taking place. The fourth seal Death, death has been happening all along. But now we see a seal opened by the lamb where a living creature tells the fourth uh, horseman to come. In verse 80 says, I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The ashen color here is is, uh, not a pretty color in this context. It is like a light green sickly color. It has the idea of the color of somebody who has been killed, the color of a corpse. Hades is following after death, simply gives the picture of people dying and being thrown into Hades, which is where unbelievers go to await the final judgment. One-fourth of humanity dies. In our numbers today, in our population, that's approximately 1.5 billion people. This is the fourth seal. The fourth. 1.5 billion people. How do they die? Well, by the sword, speaking of war. An increase and additional to the second seal. Famine intensified even more so from the third seal. Pestilence, disease now spreads due to the amount of death. I mean, we've seen this in in more limited ways. Rats with bubonic plague or the Ebola virus and its impact and its potential. The bird flu, the swine flu, epidemic viruses and disease due to the lack of food, the immune systems of people being lowered and incapable of fending off the viruses which now spread, the lack of medicinal ability, ability to get medicine. All of these things are taking place. And the last part of this is wild beasts. Even the fear of man that God has placed on the animal kingdom is removed. And wild beasts now begin to kill mankind folks (laughs) indescribable ezekiel 14 21 states this for thus says the lord god how much more when i send my four severe judgments against jerusalem sword famine wild beasts and plague to cut off man and beast from it See, the Lord's sovereign over this. He doesn't cause evil. He didn't create evil. He has allowed it. And each of these seals being opened is the indication that God is now, now allowing evil to permeate in such a way that it brings about his designed end, which ultimately leads to his ruling from Jerusalem. It ultimately leads to the overthrow of Satan and the Antichrist and the beast whose doom is sure. Incredible. I believe these riders are actual beings, clearly. but I believe they very well may be men, the Antichrist certainly. And the fact is that they are satanically energized. Where's all this headed? Why is this taking place? Why is this at the very beginning of the tribulation? Well, Satan desires a one-world government where the Antichrist is ruling over the earth. He is anti-God. He is anti-gospel or salvation in Christ by faith. And he is certainly anti-Israel, anti-Jew. No question. He goes out of his way to attack the Jewish people. Satan will create a false trinity, a false government, and a false religious system. And its consequences are devastating. Throughout history, we've seen Satan at work in various ways and through various evil leaders. Remember Mao Zedong over China? In his first five years of power, he killed four to six million people just to establish his power, just to establish his rule. And in the midst of that, he created policies. Now, hear me on this. He created policies from the government that ended up with 20 million people dying because of famine. It's not so much that they had a lack of food because there wasn't enough rain. It's that he created policies that led to the death of approximately 20 million people because of famine. Remember Stalin? My goodness. Due to his policies, nearly 10 million people starved to death. You catch this? It's because of his policies to control that nearly 10 million people starved to death. This is in addition to the people he killed in opposition to him in the great purge. He created the gulag camps for indoctrination as well as punishment. Why? For control, for power. He used food sources. He used the things that we take for granted so often as a way to control in order to make sure that he had power. Adolf Hitler. The Nazi party helped kill over 17 million people. Six million who were Jewish. Not to mention leading the entire world into World War II. My goodness. Have we seen some of these Horsemen before? I would suggest we have. We've certainly had indicators. Pol Pot, the Cambodian leader who executed two and a half million people, he also killed many. And how did he do it? By depriving them of medicine and nutrition. Kim Sung II, the, the leader of North Korea. This guy, I, this is unbelievable. He accused America of introducing an epidemic into his country and then in order to establish and and to substantiate his claim went about killing 1.6 million people. Just to say, see, I told you, America actually did this. That's incredible, folks. That's insane. That's evil. And we've got Kim Jong right now with North Korea and the whole uh, weapons issue. We've got people all over the. I mean, folks... This world, as Os Guinness said it in the Truth Project, is seething, and you can feel it. Something is about to happen. And the beauty of it is we know that God is in control. When we talk about these four henchmen, these four horsemen, I believe that they will use policies of collectivism and or central government to control The world's population, whether it's by war, in order to go to war with people that are against them, in order to establish their power, the antichrist power, or through policies where famine will take place, leading to the death of millions upon millions of people. Indescribable. In our day, we've got so many examples of this. Do we believe that there are people in our world, in our day, that believe in population control? Do we believe that in our day, in our time, there are people that are anti-God, anti-Christ in every sense? You better believe it. All you gotta do is look at Planned Parenthood, folks. That's a fact. I'll tell you what, this Margaret Sanger and how she started this thing, I mean, folks, let's wake up as the people of God and recognize Are we walking with the Lord? Is there a sense of urgency to our time and our day? Are we looking at these things through the biblical lens and understanding that we have hope, (laughs) that we know God is in control, that we know that the Lord is sovereign and is going to bring about His rule and His reign on this earth? We're salt and light. We're salt and light. How are we walking day by day in God's truth, in God's truth? How are we living out as empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in us, the truth of God's word? How are we walking in truth day by day, moment by moment? How are we walking in integrity? How are we walking according to the truth of his gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and being willing to share with people the hope that we have that God is absolutely sovereign, that the Lord Jesus Christ loves and went to the cross for them and rose again, that they too can be forgiven and become a child of the King. How are we allowing the truth of Christ to reign in our hearts so that people understand that we have a hope and they're coming to us and asking us about it and we're ready to give an account for that hope because of what Christ has done for us. 2 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15, the New Living Translation. I usually use New American Standard, but I like this one. 2 Peter 3, verses 14 and the beginning of 15 says, So dear friends, while you're waiting for these things, he's speaking to believers, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives. That means peaceful towards one another that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember Our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Wow. Boy, we can look at these four henchmen, these four horsemen, the beginning of this tribulation, and we realize it's horrific, horrific. The question is, how are we walking with the Lord in hope and joy, in thankfulness and gratitude? How are we urgently saying to the Lord in the midst of our season, in our time, Lord, I want to know you. I want to follow you. My life is yours. Whatever you choose to do in and through my life, whatever it is that you call me to, I'm willing to be used of you. Lord, I thank you that you live within me in order to empower me to do the very things that you are asking and even requiring of me. That's the question. Do we have a sense of urgency about our day? Do we have a sense of urgency about our time? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast.